This is Paul with Pod Clubhouse. And this is Kat with Shuffle Online. And today we're going to tell you all about the fifth episode of the first season of TNT's Snowpiercer. This one was called Justice Never Boarded. <laughs> Given the way that the episode goes, that title should have told you how it was going to come out, right? Yeah. I mean, at first I was reading a lot into it and thinking, since Melanie is Wolford at this point and we don't know whether Wolford ever boarded, I was like, oh, maybe he never boarded. But I wouldn't exactly think that Wolford is justice either. So then I was like, oh, that probably doesn't fit when, at the beginning of the episode. <laughs> and then I, when when the episode, as we go through, I was like, oh, okay, I understand now. <laughs> Just like the last couple of weeks, we got a cold open like monologue delivered during a montage given by kind of a side character. This, In this case, it was Miss Audrey. And I'm starting to think Miss Audrey is going to be less of a side character moving forward. Yeah, I agree. I think some of the side characters, too, are definitely having their own story, especially in this one where Layden was in the drawer. So there was more room for them to kind of step up. He's the lead. So whenever he's not there, there's a vacuum. <laughs> right. So yeah. but all the stuff that Miss Audrey said and did in this episode, like her testimony in the courtroom, which was a little bit more like a speech than actual testimony. It makes me wonder, and I'd like your opinion, is she basically the behind the scenes, like the Princess Leia of this whole thing? <laughs> when she and Melanie were talking in the night car, it was kind of an ode to a little bit of insight into how it was before, because mm -hmm. she tells Melanie, you used to try and make a difference. And so it was kind of, um, we learned a little bit more about Melanie and how she was, because we've been talking about that and whether, you know, we think she's good, bad, or, you know, she's in the gray. And so I think Miss Audrey kind of revealed that she was probably good in the early years of, of Snowpiercer, and she's kind of lost her way a little bit. So I think Miss Audrey maybe is, she's acting as maybe a little bit of the moral compass, in at okay. least in this regard, because she's a little biased too, because obviously Nikki was close to her and she's seeking justice. But I mean, that's a good thing. So I, yeah. I would say on that end, yeah, maybe she is. What about you? What do you think? I do think that she is probably going to wind up being a resistance leader because she is well-spoken and she does have some personal history with Melanie and, and would like to see this change happen. So I do think she's going to be there as an organizer and leader of that effort. Um, she's been in the fight longer, even though Andre is our, is our lead. Um, mm -hmm. He's got tail things to worry about. She's got <laughs> bigger ideas than, than just sorting out the tail. The tail will benefit if what she wants works out. Yeah, there's definitely resistance going on in what we learned from this episode. I feel like this episode, I guess it's five, right? Episode five. So yes. halfway through the first season. So it definitely felt like the momentum kicked up a bit because we finished the murder of Nikki, supposedly. And then this one just felt, especially the way that it ended, it, it really kind of felt like I don't know. It it definitely has like a different tone, a little bit more fast paced. I don't know if you felt that towards the end of the episode 
But I was like, oh, cool. I I hope this continues on for the second half of the season. I can agree with that. The stuff that happened at the end of this episode made it seem like next week there is no chance that the train is returning to normal. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) You know, it. yeah, this was a catalyst for whatever is going to come. And I think it's going to be bad, like bloody for, for some people. Yeah, and and you realize because I was thinking, oh, you know, where they're gonna hide all the, I don't know, just in in logistics wise, because it's not like a normal setting where people can go hide out in a safe house. No, and, and so it just it makes it a little bit more exciting in that sense because it's like, well, there's only so many places you can go. <laughs> right. Yeah. Speaking of someone who's only in one place, the montage that I mentioned during that opening monologue was laced with some of Andre's kind of uh, you know, sleep-induced, uh, K-drug-induced dreams. Do you suppose that those were actual memories? Were they dreams? And what do you think the significance of it all was? Yeah, I was a little confused at the beginning. Well, I was, I was trying to figure out whether they were memories or, um, I mean, I'm we don't know too much about the technology and given that the doctor is kind of doing some weird stuff i was yeah. like who knows what they have right so it right. could be where they could be inserting memories i don't know um so i was i was i'm always very skeptical if i was inserting memories i would go with more peaceful memories <laughs> yeah yeah i guess that's true right <laughs> but i mean the doctor's creepy and he's on melanie's side so i think that he's probably he wasn't going to be making the the sleep pleasant for Layden if it was going that way but it seems like well nikki showed up in his dreams or slash memories so that definitely probably wasn't you know that was kind of a manifestation of what he went through and she was singing a song and I don't know. I interpreted it as, and given that we see it again towards the end of the episode, not happy memories, but like <laughs> an ode, an ode to the beginning of of the tale section of how like of of the beginnings of the tale, like of, of when they got on Snowpiercer. I don't know if you got that, like because there was like forming. He he saw the other folks on there, so and they were kind of in a circle and and doing that, and he was going through the section. So it just seemed like an early memory of Snowpiercer for him. I think you're right. I think that I think although Nikki appears in that first part, I think the rest of it is probably a memory. And my theory on what that all adds up to is that there was, in fact, cannibalism in the tale. And he personally stopped it. But part of that was that I guess they all partook in the cannibalism as like a we're all in it kind of thing. You know, like uh, when dirty cops all take money. And even if one of the cops in the group isn't actually a dirty cop, he has to take the money. Otherwise, he's probably going to get killed by the rest. because yeah. he's, he's, <laughs> he's not uh, sharing in the kind of the group guilt I, th- I think it might be something akin to that definitely seemed like a pack and then since they show this at the very end again the last thing they said is never again and yeah. then they eat they eat whatever that was which was gross um so <laughs> i think i think you're i think you're right it seems like he was remembering then if that's true a dark memory you know like mm-hmm. a, a bad thing of the of the stuff that the tail section has done as well like they're not innocent i mean given the circumstances it's it makes sense that they have to resort to that. But yeah, I think it, it's it's an interesting thing. And maybe it's because it's murder and he just investigated a murder. Who knows, though, if they killed the person they were going to eat or they died of natural causes or whatever. So, Or like in the movie, people volunteered. Yeah, yeah, it's true. You wouldn't catch me volunteering. 
but <laughs> I'm not yeah, very no. <laughs> selfless in that regard. Yeah. Oh. But that was interesting. I think that was new. It's curious. <laughs> episode five to throw that in there. This episode had some visceral, like, makes your gut kind of squirm around stuff that was actually a little bit more reminiscent of the movie than I had gotten before. Um, we'll get to that kind of stuff as we go through. Did you notice that when LJ was in the cell and she was observing Roche and his lunch ritual, that her questions to him were eerily similar to Leighton's questions? Oh, I didn't. She's but like, now that did your wife make that? Up, that? Yeah. <laughs> Wasn't that kind of weird? <laughs> yeah, she's just so... This episode, definitely, I know we spoke on it in the last episode, but she is just a sociopath. <laughs> and this like this episode really proved that. And you were talking about visceral things in this episode. Like her sucking on her dad's eyeball. Like that was the grossest thing ever. Uh, yeah. I can't think of the last show that I've watched with something that fucked up. <laughs> yeah. That was like, I think they know they have a weird or like sociopathic child, right? Like they have to know that. I have a note for later on but that moment when mrs folgers is trying to intimidate melanie and she tells her the story of when lj took out her dad's eye and how that went down what was she hoping to impress upon melanie other than the fact that her family is very fucked up it's like uh so we have you in an insulated train where you can't move it this person is going to be going around and she did this to her own dad you don't think she killed these other people <laughs> right right like all of that was like um yeah you can try to intimidate me with how crazy violent your daughter could be i mean on, on one level that's that's intimidating but we're in a court case here and within rights i i am part of the group that could just stick her in a drawer for the rest of your natural lives and you never see her again gosh i wouldn't have known exactly how to feel about that information <laughs> that uh mrs folgers passed on I mean, the idea being that she could poke out the eye and then be so comfortable with that that she that we watch her like you know swirl it around in her mouth like a gobstopper <laughs> gobstopper oh. <laughs> right. and then her dad is in on it enough that he's like pops it out whenever she asks he's very submissive to her it's very odd relationship they're just a fucked up family i think <laughs> i don't yeah uh yeah, I mean, I don't know how getting your eye taken out works. I don't know if they just, like, ablate the entire cavity or what. But doesn't it seem like, I mean, you're prone to infection? <laughs> getting someone else's, you know, saliva all over your eye that you stick back? I don't know. I, I, gross. Just gross. But it, it really did hone in the point, though. Like, during that whole scene, she was acting very nonchalant again. And not really caring, playing uh, yes. her Nintendo Switch, which I guess they have on Snowpiercer. And <laughs> she's she's crazy. The stuff with the bartender, Shin Chu, and her new roommate, Bess, Brakeman Till, if you will. Yeah. So they made it official. They're not hung up on their second class, third class designations. Uh, that was interesting to see kind of the little ceremony where the, a third class person kind of gets provisionally promoted to second class, even though as a brakeman, she is kind of implicitly trusted as a member of the staff of the train. She was still given a pretty skeptical eye by that woman that was there to like notarize the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. 
it reminded me of like a when I when I lived in Australia, me and me and my husband. Well, uh, he wasn't my husband then, but we had to get this like relationship certificate because it's like a step towards you know if you want to stay there or whatever. And it's so funny that you have to like go and make that like official. <laughs> Um, just being in a relationship, like, <laughs> and and get that certified. So it reminded me of that. Like, you get the chip, but it's not like they're not married yet, so it's not like it could be taken away. But it's it was just like one level of kind of a visa sort of thing instead of by like country, it's by class. You get to kind of upgrade because of your like if you live in the U.S. and then you marry someone like I did, who's from another country, and then they they're able to come and become a citizen too. So it reminded me of that sort of thing. That's interesting. Yeah. The only frame of reference I had for that kind of thing was basically other TV shows and movies, some things depicting current uh, situations, like say in the military, where someone would need to disclose a relationship or something like that, or just not have it for fear of losing your place in the military. But also, um, I think I've seen, I'm not, I can't remember exactly which shows, but just the idea of maybe maybe it's even South Park. Do you watch South Park? Mm-mm. <laughs> no. Yeah. Well, there's there's an episode where um, kind of this frat house of bros that are all PC. They're all very PC. So uh, <laughs> they all get like signed consent waivers that the head bro collects in. <laughs> uh, oh yeah. Post post kegger or whatever yeah so it kind of reminds me of that kind of situation just or like have you seen upload the new thing on amazon no i haven't seen it yet but i heard it's good it's on my watch list yeah well there's a moment where a a couple is 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 about to have sex and one of them says did you bring protection the other one says yes and so they pull out these little gopros and they take turns looking into the gopros saying their names and they approve of what they're about to do or something something to that effect or they uh allow it and uh same 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 kind of idea to me just this this sense of provisionally binding yourself to this other other person and, and agreeing that you know your behavior will dictate how things kind of turn out later which yeah. is, which is my reason for bringing this up Till is a more complex character than she revealed in the first couple of episodes. I kind of think, given how she reacts when she sees Leighton in the drawers later, that she is going to end up jeopardizing Shin Chu's place in second. <laughs> what do you think? The way this episode ended, definitely that little chip is going to be removed. <laughs> um, or also it's going to, it's going to suck because now that's a way to track her. Right. So potentially we don't know how the, we don't know the limits of that technology. We have no idea, but that's true. Very I'm, I'm potentially. Assuming... I was going to say, even if it's just a matter of uh, keeping track of the last door you opened, you know, that that's a start. They mentioned that it was only three months into their relationship and then they've upgraded to, um, you know, living together, which I can't judge because I was like five, six months in and we got married so, <laughs> in my own relationship. So I guess I, I can't say anything. But yeah, so I think it's going to be complicated, which is why I think you're right. This episode, like I said, this episode seems like it's going to kick off a lot of events that are going to hopefully make the show a little bit more fast paced because it was kind of not, I wouldn't say dragging, but it was kind of doing the the whole procedural thing. Mm-hmm. And now with 
the fact that multiple characters are having the situations like now best is involved helping with Layden, which we'll get to and, and all that stuff it's like a lot more moving parts than there was like in the previous episodes it was just like one incident and we would follow that and now there's just so many other things which is exciting this one gave me some question marks about the exact nature of Shin Chu's role on the train. We know that she is the fancy bartender in first class. She lives in second class. But then she also has like this other role at Melanie's side. The next scene that I'm thinking of here is the one where she and Mel and Dr. Henry are discussing the new wake-up procedure idea, the slow, slower wake-up, which, you know, is interesting because we see a very fast wake-up <laughs> later in the episode. And he's like, that's yeah. a bad idea, but that's the way they have to do it. It just made me wonder, like, how is this bartender even invited to this conversation? Like, what is she really? What do you think? I think maybe similar to kind of the flashback that Layden had with his Taylor group, and the pact that they have. And given the fact that like Miss Audrey was talking to Melanie without regard to her position and just kind of being frank, like telling her like you were used to be a good person or whatever. Um, it seems like there is like a core group of people, which I think we've mentioned before, that were at the beginning of, of Snowpiercer, don't you think? Like I think that yeah. like, explain why like like regardless of what the position is now, like I think they were all kind of I don't know, some sort of pact in the beginning or some sort of agreement where it was like a core group of folks and then it's just become what it is now. And that's why they talk to her like that, because you brought that up. Like, why do certain people talk to Melanie, like no regard for her position? And I think that has to be it. It's made me start to think, uh, especially the, the conversation with Miss Audrey, especially the business later when she's discussing the drawers in fact being experimental and then she brings up something called the list this is the first we've heard of something called the list but now there's mm -hmm. a list it's making me think that when snowpiercer left chicago which we learned in this episode was their departure point that this amount of time in to the train's purpose or it's it's, it's mission and given melanie's role you might want to think that, well, she came on the train as Wilford's second in command. And when whatever happened to him happened to him, she just stepped up. I think that's, I would now think that that's a bad assumption. I think that perhaps Melanie was part of this group that identified the power vacuum right away whenever, with whatever circumstances that was and mm -hmm. positioned herself to become who she is. But she didn't come in with all that power. I think she grabbed it. And this is where she has has wound up. Well, we don't know yet if the others know about the whole Wilford facade. Yeah. But um, if they don't, that would make sense too. Like she was able to kind of, I don't know, somehow get in there. But the fact that Bennett knows about it, I feel like maybe the others know if they're part of the core group. But um, also Miss Audrey, when they were speaking in the night car, she also said, third touches every system on this train, we will be heard. Mm -hmm. So also, it's another kind of thing that you're talking about. Um, what's Is it Shinshu? Shinshu, I believe, is the bartender's name. Shinshu. Yeah, where they, they know a lot more than you would think, given their position. Yeah. And so that was also kind of, it was a threat. Like, hey, I can get to those systems that we need. Like, they can be shut off because I know where they are. You know, like that kind of stuff. 
So that was a very interesting power play as well, which, you know, the point that you're making about Shinshu and, and her knowing a lot more and being involved in the conversations, like, I think there's people who know a lot, but they've like been regulated to these other positions, I guess, to keep the, you know, keep the order in or, or whatever, but. Or, or placed yeah. so that they could pass along things that they hear, I mean, under the original concept, that's probably it. And that's probably what Shinshu actually does. You know, the way yeah. she, she passes on things from Till even makes you wonder if that's a real relationship on her end or not, you know? But my eye is on Shinshu for sure because she's around a lot uh, in places where a bartender normally wouldn't be. It seems like these titles are just bartender in quotes. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. It turns out that she's actually much more important, but she also is the best bartender amongst them. <laughs> So she, yeah. she took that job, right? Yeah, it's probably the most fun. <laughs> maybe, maybe. But for uh, another person on that group that we hadn't seen very much of up to this point was another engineer. Um, I think his name was Javier, like a, a French maybe sounding pronunciation of Javier. Does that sound right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah. he, he doesn't seem to see eye to eye with what everybody else is going to just go along with, with Melanie and Bennett in particular. Yeah, he he came on strong in this episode, right? A very opposed, um, because of course, Bennett is with Melanie. And so seeing him not being on, on board with both Bennett and Melanie, it seemed a little troublesome. And kind of if you're saying that Miss Audrey is going to lead a resistance, he definitely would be one to join, right? <laughs> That is interesting because he's, you know, on the inner circle, he works in the first car and it's not even a car. I mean, it's the engine. So, yeah, that's interesting. That's a that's a theory we'll have to put a pin in because it's that's a good one. It's it, Yeah. Good stuff. Yes, I agree. If any of the, the first four episodes have taught us and, and this one as well, there's a lot of communication that we necessarily haven't seen, but is going on between all classes and even the tail section. So if there is some sort of resistance building, it may be already happening. So those messages can be traveling already, you know, uh, that we don't that we don't know and will come up later. So that's also something to keep in mind. I think the delivery of the bugs to first or whatever the bugs ish kind of thing was in the in the tray, that was probably to get Melanie to come down. Because, I mean, if I was running this third class rebellion kind of thing, I think I would like make toilets back up and stuff stuff like that, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, get them all riled up. Uh, but the bugs seemed very specific, like they needed just one tiny response to that. Rather, the toilet thing would get everybody, <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's interesting, too. It's like a specific message, like she knows, oh, this is coming from Miss Audrey. Yeah, right. Well, the, the, the dude said compliments to the night car or something when he, when he took the, the cover off, so... What did you think of uh, the comment from Melanie saying that the night car is Switzerland? I think I understood that to mean that it's a little, little like the hotel in John Wick, right? Where um, people... Uh, yeah, the Continental. Yes. Yeah, where people are supposed to be able to meet there and mingle amongst the other classes without all of that meaning as much as it does outside of that car. Does that make sense? Yeah, because she said, why are you trying to politicize it? Yeah. 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 What did you take it as? 
I think just her having like saying it was interesting. Um, but yeah, it makes sense. Like they, it seemed like it would be too much tension throughout the classes if there was not that place to congregate and just like let loose and have to worry about what people are going to say or think or whatever. Like, I mean, everyone would be going crazy or become a sociopath <laughs> like LJ, even though she still became one. But um, yeah, it, it made sense. I think I like that idea. And it was also interesting when she brought it up that when it was pitched that Mr. Wilford thought it was a brothel idea. And then Melanie was the one that kind of uh, pushed it, you know, where it could get approved. So um, that was another little insight to the, the backstory of their relationship too. It kind of reminds me a little bit of, it's not the same, but it's clo- but it shares some similarities to Jezebel's in Handmaid's Tale. The idea of everything needing to be very regimented and have order, as, as Ruth says, mm-hmm. we don't have will, we have order. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but with that order comes a need to have like this release valve. And that's, I think, the night car. Well, given the release... Yeah, <laughs> that's a good a, a good segue for Bennett and uh, Melanie. <laughs> oh, right, right. Uh, Mel- <laughs> so it, we kind of got a a little bit of a time frame on how long ago the bees died out, and it sounds like it was a while. <laughs> and so, yes, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I don't know if they've been taking care of business uh, personally in in the meantime. But yeah, it sounds like it's been a while since these two have done that, and it puts a very human spin on Melanie. Uh, I mean, Bennett's a man, you know. He's got probably very tropey man needs, but we haven't seen mm-hmm. that kind of same thing with Melanie, and and we've we've seen her very calculating. Right. In this episode, especially where, Mm -hmm. you know, she has contingency plans to take care of things that in case they get out of hand. But this was just raw need. Yeah, I think it was just frustration, too, because that was also the scene with the engineer pushing back and kind of questioning what they were doing and whether it was the right thing to do. And then she was like, can I see you? And (laughs) And then she just sometimes it's not a drink and sometimes it's not whatever you need that. I think that was a non-calculated move on her part. So it definitely was very human. Yeah. Seemed seemed impromptu. <laughs> yeah. And it was another like insight to her because we learned throughout, through that interaction, she was like, I wish I could just open a window right now. And then um, they were talking about what they missed. And so it's just kind of that weight. Like Melanie has a lot of things that she's carrying I still haven't figured her out completely because like the moves she makes and these moments that she has with Bennett when she's being more human is just so it's like night and day a little bit. Don't you think? Or what do you oh, think yeah. about it? I mean, she walked around in her, in her underwear, her bra and underwear. Um, yeah. Yeah. We don't, this is a, we don't actually say panties in our house, even though that's what it is. It's, my wife thinks it's gross to hear that word. Yeah. So it's just sort of out of our lexicon <laughs> here to say it. Um, but that's a, that is a very vulnerable way to walk around in front of someone who you work with. That kind of stuff tells us that there is that side to her and there is a need to be that way with someone else she cannot just be the hospitality robot 24 hours a day all that makes her a much more compelling character than you might have seen in the first couple of episodes and i'd like Mm -hmm. to compliment the reviewing team at pod clubhouse here for (laughs) catching the fact that these two might be having more intimate discussions earlier than this episode we caught that so i'm um 
patting us on the back. Yeah. It makes sense now why there was so much tension in the last episode when they're flirting. <laughs> and it's like, oh, it's because it's been a while. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> it's like the longest tease until um, Bennett was basically saying, oh, I'm sensing a pattern here, which she basically needs to release when like shit is hitting the fan. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we'll we'll see if that if that keeps up because I think shit and the fan are going to stay in pretty close proximity for the rest of the the season. But it is interesting because I think it's not even um, like Bennett is his own character too. Like he hasn't had a, a much screen time. But I would say that the way he treats her, it's not manipulative or anything like that. Like I feel like they're kind of I wouldn't say equal footing, but it is someone that she trusts very much in order to be vulnerable like that and knowing what he knows about her. Like he knows the secret and the fact that she is okay with that, like just says a lot. If this show continues, it, it kind of almost writes in the idea that she has him killed at some point because she thinks he's up to no good. And in fact, he's been on her side the whole time. Layden hasn't met him yet, right? Or so he doesn't know about that. I don't think so. I, yeah. She's always come back to meet with with Layton. And except for surveying the damage to the cattle car, I don't recall seeing Bennett outside of the engine. Do you? No, I don't. So I think he's kind of hidden as well. Yes. <laughs> so let's just hope he doesn't want to go out in the open or else she, he's going to get the axe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Poor Bennett. He'll probably survive the first season, but I don't know. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. All right. So we get more and more of that kind of British class bullshit that we were talking about in this episode like i mentioned with ruth and her we have order that sounds very turn of the last century kind of british attitude towards things it sounds a little eerie about the way things are coming out of, of the white house these days same kind of messages and it's not really being received all that well hearing that from her makes me wonder if even though she and melanie are friendly and seem to have a good working relationship. If push comes to shove, A, I don't think that Ruth is aware of the Mr. Wilford situation. I just don't think that she's in on it. But if she ever did find out, I don't think she would come down on Melanie's side, given how she views the way that things are supposed to work. I think she might view Melanie as a usurper. Yeah, I think so too. I think she definitely is one of those characters that she knows her role and she follows it to a T. And if it's out of line, because it's kind of a, a doctrine, right? And she's followed it so much that if she realizes that it was all for nothing, I think that would really break her. Because that's her entire the structure that she's kind of based the way that she operates on. And if that breaks, then <laughs> she won't have anything left. Yeah, no, and she'll be like, "What the fuck? I was doing all this stuff, and you were the you were Mr. Wolford. Like, I would be pissed too." So yeah. it's a it's 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 understandable why Melanie does things so calculated too, because like Ruth, like the fact that if she did find out, she knows all hell would break loose, and so Melanie is walking a fine line like every day, mm -hmm. and that must be so. Oh, to keep it all together, it, it's just, uh, it's a lot of pressure. That's why she needs a Shinshu. Like it's, I don't know if you recall, but when she sends that message using the Wilford tube, I think we're supposed to understand that things that come through that tube in those special W embossed canisters are understood to not be Wilford Industries, but from Mr. Wilford himself. Yeah. And so she sends the tube to the engine 
with a note that says, send this back <laughs> in the event of a guilty. The moment when she decides to do that, she is not with Ruth. She is with Shin Chu. This episode kind of, is, it's the order is dissolving. <laughs> exactly. Part of that order is that military commander guy. When the first class people have that sit down with him where they're basically seeing if he would be a game for a coup, we never got his answer. And even the guy that sells out the other firsties, he didn't have an answer either. Where do you think the commander would lie if this revolution starts to happen? I mean, given the way he interacted with Melanie in an earlier episode, he kind of doesn't give a shit, right? I think he's really just looking out for himself and also has a very power complex of, I think, very stereotype military dude. I don't know. I don't think he's necessarily going to take a side. Right. I think it's more about what he thinks is right, which I don't think is quote unquote right. <laughs> right. I think he just kind of likes exerting his power. And like he's if he's going to see a situation where he can do that, I think he's going to do it no matter what side it is. So the way that he interacted with uh, the Folgers made total sense for his character because that's the way he's been playing it with everybody. He doesn't give a shit. Like he's there to keep the order, right. quote unquote. But I don't know if he really has a moral compass or like, is he serving anybody other than what he thinks his role is, th which is kind of a scary thought. I think you're right. I think he is a defender of order and that the stuff that the firsties were talking about I don't know if I'm going to start saying secondies because that doesn't make any sense. But the the firsties is okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, seconds. You could say seconds. The seconds, right? Okay, good. Uh, the, the stuff that the firsties was ta they were talking about. I just don't see him going along with it. I just don't see him deciding to try to lend the, his jackboots to that cause because what they're talking about, you know, removing Melanie and, and all that kind of stuff would be such a disruption to order. What's their solution? Having a passenger put in charge of the train or, or, or something like that? I see him siding uh, with Melanie on if there's if there does need to be some siding. I, I think he's going to come down on that way. That doesn't mean he's always going to. I just think initially he would. I, I agree with you. What did you think of the whole trial scenario of like the way that unfolded? Well... I have been called to jury duty several times, but I've never actually sat through an entire, well, that's not true. I have sat through one, like, civil case, and so most of my knowledge of how a trial is supposed to work comes from TV. <laughs> So. Yeah, I think I, when you when you were talking about, it, I was like, I've never been to an actual trial, so I only know with TV trial and movie trial. But given that, it seems like whoever came up with the train's code of justice probably had about as much legal experience as you and me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, someone committed murder. Oh, let's have like the people who's close to them judge them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It seemed like her dad at one point was going to be her advocate or lawyer, but then there didn't ever seem to be any cross-examinations of the people giving testimony and no guidance. They just came up and and gave like a prepared statement, and it mm -hmm. seemed very old style. Like by old style, I mean like I don't even know when. Like kind of like Game of Thrones, even just. <laughs> <laughs> there was yeah yeah very very old style yeah yeah so it just made me like question the 
the legitimacy of the process, but it's the it's the only process they got, and they seem to at this point agree to it. I don't know how much longer they will, but at this point they're all in. Well, she did agree, and it's just she's playing. I, I think we mentioned she's playing chess, right? And like when you think Melanie has just like oh she might have reached her end where they're gonna find her out or they're gonna get her, she is like two steps ahead and she counteracts like she had the contingency plan to make sure like how it went yeah and still like you know uh calculated the outcome so even though she agreed to have those three independent juries from each class be like the jury of the peers that were obviously going to probably like the way it went is that lj was convicted or whatever convicted means drawed but then she 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 kind of pulled out that card again the wilford card and and made it null because she knew that those folders were oh well actually the reason why she did that the contingency plan is once she heard i guess we need to talk about that is lj's testimony and sean weiss right <laughs> and what yeah because that, that i think that was the catalyst for what melanie and ultimately ended up doing right yeah because she did not have the contingency in place uh i mean she pulled the trigger on it in a, such a way that made me think she had done a lot of thinking about it beforehand, but she didn't actually have it in place until, like you said, or she had heard LJ's testimony. What did you think of of what LJ said? Because Sean Weiss was in the very first episode. Nikki died, so we, I mean, was murdered, so we didn't really um, get to hear anything about that. And so it was fine. I was wondering when, because I, I was feeling like that was kind of a bummer that we, like, it seemed kind of pointless, that whole thing of, like, what did he know and, and the informant type of thing. And I liked that it came out with LJ because then it made LJ significant in some way because it was just kind of she's a sociopath and she's killing these people. And I was like, what's the point of it? And then when she reveals that, it's like, oh, she's a smart sociopath because <laughs> she had that information and she waited to pull it out at the very end. So, very, very unsubtly, right? She's giving this, this yes. statement where she's painting herself as a love-struck teen kind of swept up by this older man who just told her what to do and even though they were bad things she loved him so much that she just had to cut off penises with him but then she just lays in this and by the way you know sean weiss knew all this stuff and uh you know i i, I might know some of that same stuff so you know put that in your pipe and smoke it oh it was so good i i would say i like that because i didn't see it coming <laughs> uh no and I, I, you wouldn't be alone i don't think melanie saw that coming either did you see the look though when um i think it was to shinju like melanie gives like she like kind of like twists her neck and be like this bitch you know like that kind of <laughs> that kind of look and she's like oh i gotta do what i gotta do now <laughs> that's a tough call like essentially she made the whole proceedings just pointless with what she did and whenever that happens in real life that's the kind of thing where people go nuts it happens yeah. where uh, someone is found guilty of a crime that gets some amount of notoriety, but then the judge says, okay, you're guilty, but your sentence is nothing. Yeah. And that happens in real life and people get pissed. And we don't get to really see the fallout of that in this episode. I think there will be fallout next episode. Well, I guess in that case, she chose... Um, First. And, well, there was a line though. I think LJ, when LJ, when she speaks to LJ privately... And she's like, I did this. Let me see. Um, I wrote it down. Wilford looked out for me. That's so it. I looked out for yeah, him. Yeah. And I found it interesting because we don't know who knows. And it just made me feel like 
does she know something you know like because it was kind of saying like basically speaking to melanie or we're i may be just interpreting that because i know that melanie is wolford but it was that sort of thing and that ultimately melanie chose to do what she did not for first but for herself (laughs) and for like the order of things and who knows if that's I don't know, bite her in the ass. Because also, if you think about it, she could have just let LJ get drawered and then she would have shut up by going to sleep. So it's interesting that she let her out and let her do that. Yeah, if it's part of a, a longer game where having her out is more advantageous than than having her in the drawers, I don't see the benefit. The only thing that I do see is the short-term benefit of not pissing off first, who had said that, who she knew they were gunning for her. Yeah. I don't know in what form that could possibly be, but it's it's starting to look like Melanie didn't want to find out. Maybe she thought that LJ told her parents what she knows. And so then that's why she maybe thought back to Miss Folger's threat and basically put two and two together and was like, oh, maybe she told they know and they're going to collude against me kind of thing. So she just wanted to yeah. settle that a little bit and to give her time to regroup. And the interesting thing is that LJ's knowledge could also be largely a bluff. She may not know much, but she knew the right things to say, the right name to drop to scare the shit out of Melanie. It was perfect. Like, LJ is, is uh, considering where she started in the first episode, I didn't think she would be such a big character. But it's been fun, I think, seeing her character play out. Because in other shows, we wouldn't get a teenager who's this psycho, you know? And, <laughs> right. and it's usually, like, someone else. So it, I like the spin on that, that she's the one that's kind of playing with these adults. <laughs> Yeah. With her with her chaos. All right. So the last bit that we haven't really talked about is the whole Josie thing. The Josie gets called forward by Astrid to try to find um Leighton and she runs into Terrence. Terrence showed up again in this one. Really the most good old Terrence. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there was just a couple of couple of interesting points for me in that subplot, which was Terrence is not so powerful that uh, he doesn't do his own dirty work when it comes to stealing from the clinic. (laughs) But he's also interesting how we at one moment can think that he and Leighton might be able to work together sometime down the road, but he's not so sold on transferring any loyalty yet that he's going to stick around and try to find him in the drawers. Did you have any, any thoughts on the whole Terrence interaction? Yeah, if, if he wanted to have a relationship at all with Layden and, and kind of like a team thing, like that's not it. So he kind of broke that because like if if you if you want to have that or maybe he just thought he was a lost cause because he was in the drawer and was like, fuck this, like you can't help me now. But that was a little disappointing because I was hoping it was going to be a team up of like what we had talked about. Yeah. Because Terrence seemed pretty cool in that regard, like like a respect sort of thing based on like a, like a mafia kind of respect, you know, like I do this for you, you do this for me. But if other things go- happen, then, you know, the bets are off. But that was pretty quick, right? Like it just <laughs> it was like the bet was off from the beginning. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't think the door is closed exactly, but. Because I, I wanted to think that Terrence might have been thinking of things that he had, a lot of concrete things that if he got caught would get fucked up, you know, like his whole organization or whatever. And lots of people would would suffer if if he was caught mm-hmm. doing that. And he just couldn't risk the, all that, and including himself, selfishly, on this guy that he met one time. So I could under yeah. I could understand his his position. I 
I, I still think there's going to be more to it with him because he made this face that the camera lingered on for a second when Josie said that she thought Leighton was in the drawers. He, he kind of gave this face like, uh, I wish that didn't happen or some, something like that or surprise even. Did you see that? Yeah, I said... Uh... He said something, right? Like uh, he's supposed to be in the tail. I... He's not in the drawer. He's probably dead. Like, why is he so significant that he would be in a drawer? Mm. And so that I think really surprised him that they, like, that he would be there. And so maybe he still wasn't sold that he was there because it was. I guess he just didn't think that Melanie would keep him. I don't know. So that was interesting too because I think he was still kind of confused on why he was so important. And then we have the whole best turning on Osweiler. I think Bess is going to end up being pro-third, pro-Taley by the end of this thing, if she's not killed at some point. Because she's starting to see that there are problems with their little system. There are things that that she can live with. She can live with the segregated classes. Yeah. She can live with all these different things. But she, I don't think she can deal with getting lied to by people. She can understand and cope with the un- injustice because that was what everybody signed up for. But if she gets lied to, yeah. that's a different thing. Well, yeah, because she's part of the police force, right? Or whatever they're, they are. Breakman, I don't understand. She yeah. believes in which, yeah, Breakman, like whatever, you can tell she believes in that. And the fact that she thought she was doing the right thing in some ways and meeting Layden, she knows that he wasn't bad, you know, even for being a tailie. Mm-hmm. I guess they did tell her some one thing like he's, oh, he's back in the tail. She was the one that was said like, oh, I thought he was in the tail section. Like, you know, she thought he was fine. And that really bugged her. I think that kind of broke her system. Like, you know, we're talking about if it broke Ruth, like if she found out that Melanie was Wilford, like this little tidbit of information, knowing that what she thought she knew wasn't true. I think that definitely is probably turning her to the other side because she ultimately ends up helping Josie take Layden out and try to get him help. I don't think she would have done that if she didn't feel wronged. (laughs) And uh, it's a belief system, right? So. Just like Oswald or whatever, he he obviously chose sides when she he was beating up Josie. So right, so he we know what side he was on, and Bess didn't do that. So we clearly know which side she's on. Or if she was confused about it, but she reacted in that way, her actions basically have chosen her side for her. Yeah, I th- yeah, I think it, yeah. uh, every episode has made me want to go and watch the next episode, but none more so than this one. How do you feel? Like you said, this is this feels like it's picking up speed. And man, uh, I don't see anyone watching this one and then being like, yeah, I give up. I hate that show. I, I think it's getting more compelling as we go. Yeah, because I think I was a little like even pressing play on this episode. I was like, eh, like it's been cool and everything, but there's not there. There wasn't anything. The fact that we had just stopped with the whole procedural kind of show. And then I was like, well, what else is there? Because they basically had set it up like that. And I thought that was what the season was going to be, solving this murder. And then it stopped. And so I was like, what else is there? And then so this episode really made me want to continue because I was like, oh, there is more. And the last probably like 20 minutes were very jam packed. And it did remind me of the movie of the fast paced sort of environment. So I was like, oh, maybe they just were starting off slow. And then it's going to really go into that more fast paced sort of movie, movie, uh, like reminiscent of the movie. Yeah. Um, and it made me excited, too. Like, I want to go and press play on the on the next episode. <laughs> <laughs> well, We will do that. We will both press play probably sooner than later and be back next week to talk about episode six. Do you have any predictions at this point that that you'd like to share? 
I I don't know if it's a prediction, but a comment. I'm really excited to see how Melanie reacts um, when she finds out that Layden is gone. <laughs> ah, yes. And given the fact that LJ, um, you know, what she pulled, she may need Layden now. So he, she's going to have to win him back to find out more about what LJ knows and um, if anybody else knows. So I think she's we're gonna she's gonna need a detective, and I think that's how they're gonna get back with their partnership. I don't know. What do you What do you think? I think it is going to be chaos on the train for the next couple of episodes because Osweiler was gone when Bess went back to look for him. Uh, he is going to squeal like I don't I don't yeah. see any any reason why he hasn't squealed already. Yeah. So that means, like you said. Melanie's going to become aware of Andre being missing, and that is going to be one end of the chaos. The next end is going to be the third is going to feel pissed about the way this went down. And whatever they were threatening to do in terms of being heard, being felt, I think Operation The Toilets Don't Work Anymore is, is going to go into effect <laughs> next week. Yeah. Stuff like that. But that's it. That's the best I can I can do. I've been wrong in a lot of predictions so far, uh, but I still enjoy the trying trying to get it right on this show. Yeah, it's been fun. And I think this episode really, um, it, it's getting exciting, more exciting. So I would just tell people not to give up on it if they're kind of on the fence. <laughs> yeah, yeah, me too. It, was, it started good. It started right in my wheelhouse, but I would say it's, it's getting better. And that's not to say it started bad. Because good things can get better, yeah. too. I know people had different feelings about the way it got kicked off, but I, I think this is turning into pretty good TV. Yeah, me too. All right. Well, this has been Paul with Pod Clubhouse. And this is Kat with Shuffle Online. And we'll catch you guys next week for episode six. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you. Pod Clubhouse.